Judges chapter 15. Continue in our looking in the book of Judges, Judges 15. This is God's holy word. He gives it to us, his people, for our good. Let's give our attention to its reading, ongoing account of Samson's life. Later on, at the time of wheat harvest, Samson took a young goat and went to visit his wife. He said, I'm going to my wife's room, but her father would not let him go in. I was so sure you thoroughly hated her, he said, that I gave her to your friend. Isn't her younger sister more attractive? Take her instead. Samson said to them, this time I have a right to get even with the Philistines. I will really harm them. So he went out and caught 300 foxes and tied them tail to tail in pairs. He then fastened a torch to every pair of tails, lit the torches, and let the foxes loose in the standing grain of the Philistines. He burned up the shocks and standing grain, together with the vineyards and olive groves. When the Philistines asked, who did this? They were told, Samson, the Timnite's son-in-law, because his wife was given to his friend. So the Philistines went up and burned her and her father to death. Samson said to them, since you've acted like this, I won't stop until I get my revenge on you. He attacked them viciously and slaughtered many of them. Then he went down and stayed in a cave in the rock of Etam. The Philistines went up and camped in Judah, spreading out near Lahai. The men of Judah asked, why have you come to fight us? We have come to take Samson prisoner, they answered, to do to him as he did to us. Then 3,000 men from Judah went down to the cave in the rock of Etam and said to Samson, Don't you realize that the Philistines are rulers over us? What have you done to us? He answered, I merely did to them what they did to me. They said to him, We've come to tie you up and hand you over to the Philistines. Samson said, Swear to me that you won't kill me yourselves. Agreed, they answered. We will only tie you up and hand you over to them. We will not kill you. So they bound him with two new ropes and led him up from the rock. As he approached Lahai, the Philistines came toward him shouting. The spirit of the Lord came upon him in power. The ropes on his arms became like charred flax and the bindings dropped from his hands. Finding a fresh jawbone of a donkey, he grabbed it and struck down a thousand men. Then Samson said, with a donkey's jawbone, I have made donkeys of them. With a donkey's jawbone, I have killed a thousand men. When he finished speaking, he threw away the jawbone, and the place was called Ramath Lahai. Because he was very thirsty, he cried out to the Lord, You have given your your servant this great victory. Must I now die of thirst and fall into the hands of the uncircumcised? Then God opened up the hollow place in Lahai, and water came out of it. When Samson drank, his strength returned, and he revived. So the spring was called En-Hakor. And it is still there in Lahai. Samson led Israel for 20 years in the days of the Philistines. 
The grass withers, the flower fades, the word of the Lord endures forever. Amen. Let's pray. So great God, what we know not, teach us. What we have not, give us. And what we are not, make us. For your Son's sake. Amen. With the rapid changes that happen in our world, each day kind of not knowing uh, who's going to say the right thing or or what's going to be the right side to align with. I kind of like what this person said yesterday. Am I going to like what they say tomorrow? How do I describe myself in terms of the positions I hold and what I think is right and good, what we should do in this world? Everything's constantly changing, constantly shifting. It seems like there's a there's a dearth, there's a vast shortage of godly role models at the highest levels of society. Uh, those to whom we would look and say, uh, there's someone I know, I, I can trust, that the constantly they will be God-glorifying and, and God-honoring. There's someone I can, I can say to my children, look to this person and try to be like them. There's also a, a sense that there's a lot of unfulfilled promises in our world. The, the foundations seem to be crumbling underneath us. That which we've always uh, trusted in to, to sort of be there the next day and the next week and the next month. We all of a sudden think maybe that's not a guarantee. Maybe those things uh, won't always be there. There's, there's, false, there's false salvations out there. The false sources of strength. Things that would demand our, our hearts, demand our trust. Trust in me, trust in me, trust in me. And it's, it's all false and um, idolatry. We ask these questions. You know, who, who do I look to? What do I trust in? Where do I go to for strength? I think, I believe that, that this chapter answers all of those questions in a mighty way. This is a chapter that calls us as God's people to look to Christ first and foremost. Of course, we look to him for salvation, but we also look to him as the one who shows us what true life is. What what is it really like to live? If you want an answer to that question, you look to Jesus, you look to Christ. He showed us what this life is all about in his seeking the glory of his father, in his seeking the glory of God. When we see unfulfilled promises all around us and we don't really know what's guaranteed as we move forward, that's a call for us to live by faith. Where is some place we can always go that is sure and that is certain? It's the promises of God. One of the things I've been reminded of in this, this past few months or so is that when we come together here at church, one of the, the main things that we're doing is we're giving our allegiance to a kingdom that is solid, that will never go away, that will never disappear. It's to reorient us to that ultimate reality, to remind us that God is on the throne, that he reigns, that we are citizens of his kingdom, and that we ought to live in ways that reflect that. Your life, you ought to live in a way that the only explanation for your life is God. That should be the only explanation for how you live the way that you live. And we're refreshed unto that truth when we come together here at church. This is an embassy of God's kingdom. 
And then when we think about all of the, the false hopes out there, you put your hope in this, it's going to let you down. Put the, your hope in this, it's going to let you down. Well, that's a reminder and a call to rely on God's grace, to be dependent more and more upon him, as we talked about earlier, uh, earlier this morning. So we'll, we'll consider all of those things uh, as we work through Judges 15, through the life of Samson. And this is not, this doesn't close the chapter on Samson, but it is one part, uh, one chapter in, in Judges. So the reminder to look to Christ, to live by faith, and to rely on God's grace. How does Samson live? He lives, you could almost say a mantra of his life is, not thy kingdom come, but my kingdom come. That's really what, what Samson is all about. My kingdom come. And what we learn from that is that a life defined by my motives, by my desires, by my goals, making sure that I make my life solely about what I want and what I want to achieve, what that means is that you will always be tempted, the great temptation will always be to respond in revenge, in sort of a a self-defending, revengeful attitude uh, in regards to what people do to you. Samson is a man of revenge, always trying to take vengeance, always being offended because of what happens to him or what people do to him. And what happens is he, he largely misses God's higher calling on his life. God does great things through him, and we'll talk about that a little bit as well. But Samson largely misses God's higher calling on his life. And so rather than looking to Samson, we're reminded that we ought to look to Christ, to depended on his father, and sought to make his father look great. As I mentioned, Samson is a man who always does what he wants. Last week, he, he sees this Philistine woman. I want her for my wife. She's right in my eyes. She's the right one for me. Uh, by the end of last week's chapter, he just leaves. He's gone, which doesn't seem like something a newlywed should do. Now we're back uh, in Judges 15, and he just sort of shows up. It has a goat to offer, maybe a little gift. I'm here. I'm, I'm here to be with my wife now. Why? Because that's what he wanted to do. He's a man who's led chiefly by his desires, doing only what he wants. One of the things, the recurring themes in the, in the life of Samson is his interaction with animals. You've got the, the honey in the lion's carcass. You've got this very strange account with the foxes or the jackals. And then you, you have uh, the jawbone of the donkey. And as I mentioned last week, it, it, it's, it's almost as if Samson is an Adam gone wrong. Adam was told to, to exercise dominion over the creation. And there was, there was to be a harmony there. That the dominion that Adam was to exercise over all of the world was to be peaceful between humankind and the animal kingdom. And there was going to be a, something that you would to look at it and say that fits, that makes sense, the kind of dominion that you see there. But here it's not so much dominion as it is abuse and misuse. But the interaction with animals is also a reminder that, that Samson is largely a man who's led by animal instincts as well. It's not virtue. He's not asking the question, what does God want me to do here? He's not asking the question, how is it that I'm going to make sure that I obey God in this situation? The only thing he asks is, what do I feel like doing? That's to live basically like an animal. 
someone who's called to such high service of God, you would think that we would have more interaction with God, more dialogue with him, speaking to him, or the Lord speaking to back to Samson. We don't see that. God's voice is conspicuously absent from Samson's life. But then we, we do also see the spirit working in and through Samson. But that seems to be further commentary that even when we act in foolish ways, even when we think we're going off on our own path, God is going to accomplish his purposes in and through us. His purpose cannot be thwarted. And that should make us thankful in one, one way. Judges is a book of God's grace. If you look at any of the characters, there's so few commendable characters in the book of Judges, and yet what reigns is God's grace. It's always, uh, it always comes down to God's grace. Why would he save his people? Why would he bless his people? Not because of what they deserve or what they have merited on their own, but because he loves them by his grace. And that's a wonderful reminder and encouragement to us, even as we look at Samson, that God uses broken tools. God uses broken tools in his kingdom. So Samson does what he wants. He follows his desires. That disharmony uh, between an Adam gone wrong and the creation is really, it comes to the fore in that situation with the jackals or the foxes where he comes at the time of wheat harvest he, ca- he captures all of these animals, sets fire to their tails. He's destroying life in order to destroy more life, right? The, the Philistines lose the wheat harvest here at this time. So everything is flipped on its head. Then everything that Samson does is in retaliation to what's done to him. There, there's no waiting on the word of the Lord, go out and go into battle against the Philistines. He's always bent on taking revenge, And all of us can relate to that instinct, right? We all struggle with that in our hearts. You say, people out there can do whatever they want. You can live your life however you want. But if you do something to me, I'm coming after you. Don't do anything to me because I will get revenge. I'm a person who holds a grudge. We all have that deep inside of us. We're deeply offended when people do things to hurt us, when people say things to, to, to mock us and to revile us, to slander us, when we are mistreated, how difficult it is to, to forget. God's kingdom, though, we are to operate by a different principle. What does Jesus say that we are supposed to do when someone mocks you, when someone persecutes you, when someone slanders or reviles you to your face? He says, rejoice, rejoice in that day and be glad, for great is your reward in heaven. It's not the way Samson reacts, though, is it? Verses 3 and 7 in our passage, Samson said to them, this time I have a right to get even with the Philistines, I will really harm them. Why? Because they took his wife, whom he shouldn't have chosen in the first place, and whom he mistreated. His, his father-in-law, former father-in-law, his reasoning isn't that bad. Samson, you left. What was I supposed to do? The, the, the whole wedding was a disaster. But of course, Samson thinks he's able to get revenge now. Samson, or Judges 15, verse 7, Samson said to them, Since you've acted like this, I won't stop until I get my revenge on you. But to be godly is to think that the worst offenses are those which are direct offenses committed against God. 
That's the worst thing that you can do in the universe. For a godly person, all of our sin, we see it first and foremost as a sin against God. Psalm 139. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. Men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. That's the psalmist's concern. They're speaking against God, therefore they are wicked. He says, your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? Samson's concern is revenge. Then finally, all of his achievements are victories from conflicts brought about by his own bad behavior. There are some amazing things that God does in and through Samson, some amazing achievements and victories, but all of those conflicts only come about because of what he does following his own desires, his own bad behavior. None of these things would have happened or, or would have needed to have happened if not for Samson following his basest desires. He probably would not have fought any of these battles if, people would have, if the Philistines would have left him alone. Less time, it's a reminder to us that less time having to clean up your own messes will leave more time to accomplish God's purposes. Samson's always cleaning up his messes. One thing that's strange about the, the account of Samson as it goes on for several chapters is that we seem to have left the national picture. We're no longer talking, we don't have this feel of the nation of Israel altogether. We're just talking about Samson. But Samson is a miniature Israel, isn't he? Israel is an Adam gone wrong. Israel's struggles are all brought about by their own rebellion. All of their troubles are what happen because of their own sin. Collectively, they do what is right in their own eyes. And so when we look at Samson, what we're looking at is is a, a man who personifies Israel at this point in the judge's uh, picture. And this is, again, judges is like a sermon to God's people. And so the author of Judges is appealing to God's people saying, quit living for yourselves. Quit living for your own desires. Stop doing what is right in your own eyes. And it's a reminder to us, as God's people, to renounce my kingdom for thy kingdom. That's the call upon us. As we look at the the kind of rampant sin and rebellion in Judges, it's a reminder of the need to renounce my kingdom for thy kingdom. Several reasons why. One of the clearest reasons is that even when we make it about ourselves, God accomplishes his purposes. Remember, God is, is, is seeking to stir up conflict between Israel and the Philistines. And the way that he's doing it, because Israel has gotten comfortable with the Philistines, is he's using Samson through all of these personal escapades, all of these personal battles, and the kind of conflict, the hatred and strife between Israel and the Philistines is going to start to boil. It's going to start to happen through this one man. And so God's purposes are still fulfilled. And we need to remember that in our own lives, that God is going to fulfill his purpose for this universe, whether one human being lives in faith and dependence and service to him or not. So it's it's going to come to the same result. God's purposes will not be thwarted. But it's it's a challenge to us to use the time we have to glorify God and to serve him, to join with him in that project of his ultimate glory that he will accomplish in the universe. But we also sense the tragedy, don't we, of Samson wasting his high calling. This, per, this man who was born miraculously 
to a barren woman and set apart for the service of God. And he spends his life in frivolity. He spends his life in foolishness and in sin. I think there's, there's a connection there to a lot of the language that we see in the New Testament when Paul is saying, calling Christians, live in a way that is in step with how God has called you to live. Live in a way that reflects the glory of the gospel. Ephesians chapter 4, walk in a manner worthy of your calling. You could say the same thing to Samson. Philippians 1, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Colossians 1, walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. When we live in Christ, we can be pleasing to God. Not that what we do is merit in and of itself, but God looks upon us in his son as we trust in him. And he accepts our sincere and genuine obedience. And so the ultimate goal of our lives ought to be to please God and to glorify God. 2 Corinthians 5. Whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please Him. Everything you do in life, you should put it through the lens of the pleasure of God. Is this, will this please God? Will it please Him? That's the highest calling that we have. Philippians 1.20 It's my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. Highest calling for Paul was that Christ would be honored, was that He would be magnified in His body. That is the calling upon every Christian to make Christ look great, to make your God look great, to glorify him. All of us have such a high calling. And we see that. We see the full picture of life when we look to Jesus, who came to this life, who came to this earth, lived his life in order to make his father look great. You're not going to live a better life than Jesus. A life that was really devoid of of the kinds of earthly pleasures that we often seek. Many of, the, many of those things can be good in their right place. But satisfaction and joy, lasting joy, comes from serving God and making him look great. We also see in this chapter the foolishness of opposing God's chosen one. So this is a call to us to live by faith, to live by faith, to live by faith in his promises. Again, Judges is, a, is an appeal. Stop living foolishly. Stop living like fools. And one of the ways that it's shown to be foolish is to oppose a man that God has anointed for his own service, like Samson. Samson is opposed by the Philistines and he's opposed by the Israelites. He himself is no picture of piety and obedience, but nevertheless, God has chosen him and set him apart. Thus, it would be foolish to oppose him. It reminds us of King David when he had already been anointed to the throne, but he had not yet taken the throne in Israel, and he refuses to lift a hand against Saul. Why? David said, that's God's man. I'm not going to touch him. I'm going to let God deal with him, and I will simply live by faith. So God has already told us about the victory we are to enjoy, even though we don't see it. We don't see God's kingdom in its fullness. We don't see Christ's victory with our eyes. But we are called to trust it and to live by faith. 
So the first group that opposes Samson are, are the Philistines. The Philistines are themselves pictured as bumbling fools in this chapter. Everything they try, every idea that they have, ends up in further defeat for them. There's almost, there's like a dark humor in this chapter with the kinds of things that are happening to the Philistines. They marry off Samson's wife. It results in their losing the wheat harvest. They burn Samson's wife's family and it turns out in slaughter. They take Samson captive and it results in another slaughter at Jawbone Hill. So it's, it's, it's one of those things, you read the chapter and you have to say, okay, if I'm, if I'm thinking about how I ought to live, I should not live like the Philistines. So then, you look at the Judahites, God's people, a tribe of Israel. Should you live like them? No. Because what do they do? In their own way, they oppose Samson as well. We read after, after uh, Samson slaughters them, after they uh, kill his wife or his former wife, He goes and he camps at this cave and the Philistines come in battle. Thousands of men come out. Judah is worried about this, the men of Judah, so they go talk to them. Why are you here, Philistines? Well, we're here because Samson did this. And so then you have 3,000 men from Judah and there it's almost like a battle. You see, see, there's a picture of a battle. Going to battle against whom? Against the Philistines? No, they're going up against Samson. They want to find the man who has caused this trouble. And they go to Samson and they say, don't you realize that the Philistines are our rulers? What have they done? They've accepted that this, uh, these sinful, uncircumcised people are ruling over them. They've gotten comfortable with it. They've gotten comfortable with the status quo. And so they too end up opposing God's anointed. Don't you realize the Philistines rule over us? What have you done to us. Why did you stir up trouble with the Philistines? If you want to expel sin from your life, oftentimes there will be trouble. And you need to accept that and you need to soldier on. And so what happens? They bind up God's chosen man of deliverance. They bind him, tie him up. We haven't come to kill you, they say. We just want to tie you up and hand you over to those who will kill you. Judah's actions are a reminder to us, don't accept the status quo of slavery to sin. Don't say in your life, in your heart, well, there, I, I just, this is the way it is. I, I guess this is, this is one sin that I'm never going to see any victory over in my life. I guess this is one sin that I've been, been made to struggle with. Don't accept it. Wage war on it. There's always a war to fight. You have to admire the courage of those stories you heard about uh, Japanese soldiers who uh, remained camped out in the jungle for decades after World War II was over. In their mind, it wasn't over. It was never over for them. They were ready to die and they were willing to die. Right? That's somewhat a picture of the Christian life. It's never over. The battle is never over. You need to wage war on sin and you need to kill it. The foolishness of opposing God's anointed is confirmed as Samson has these improbable victories. Time after time after time. Leading, of course, to the battle of Jawbone Hill, which is the name he gives to the place when he kills a thousand men with the jawbone of a donkey. It's foolishness to oppose God because God often achieves his victory in ways that turn human strength on its head. Samson is looking in the face of a thousand men. How could a thousand men not beat one? But they don't. And he uses something as unconventional as 
the jawbone of a donkey, which in some ways may further advance the picture of Samson as a man who's willing to break any vow. This, this could be uh, a donkey's jawbone that's still a corpse, and so he touches it and is unclean, and yet God continues to achieve victory through him. But we see God's power through apparent weakness. And in that picture of God's people binding the one that God has chosen and handing him over into the hands of the enemy, there we have, don't we, such a beautiful picture of the ultimate accomplishment of God's power, of the ultimate time when human strength was turned on its head, when Jesus Christ won victory not at Jawbone Hill but at Golgotha, the place of the skull, where he was bound up by his own people, handed over into the hands of sinful men. He was crucified. He looked straight into the face of sin and death, and he conquered. He won in a victory that you never would have guessed could have happened, that you never would have counted on. And yet there we see our Savior, the one who defeated death so that he would reign forevermore. And so if you would live wisely, if you would live wisely, don't oppose God's anointed. Reminds you almost of Psalm 2, doesn't it? The one who sits in the heavens laughs at the plans of men. Even the plans of kings who say we're going to do this and we're going to do that. And this is how we're going to achieve it all. There's a God who is above it all. And there is a God who has told his people and has told us to proclaim to the world that there's a victory that has already been won. That his son is reigning and ruling at his right hand. That he has gone through the gates of hell and death and has emerged victorious. And he is on the throne And it is foolish to oppose him. And it is foolish to not trust in the victory that he has guaranteed through his son. Revelation chapter chapter 11. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And he shall reign forever and ever. And so God's call upon his people is to persevere in faith. Don't abandon the faith. Keep trusting him to your dying breath. Live each and every day by faith believing that his promises are true, that they will come true and be realized in your life. In the book of Revelation, in all of the letters to the churches, there is this call over and over and over again uh, to conquer, to overcome the world. For instance, Revelation 2.26, The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, The one who conquers will be clothed in white garments. The one who conquers I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. What does it mean to conquer? It means to overcome this life by persevering in faith. 1 John chapter 5. Everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Because the world that you see that you take in with your eyes, preaches a false gospel. Trust in, the, trust in what you see. This is all you have. This is the only guarantee. But God's word says there's something more. The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. And so the call is to persevere in faith, for God will provide all that we need. 
There's a world, this is a world that's full of unfulfilled promises. God's promises are sure. He will grant you to eat at the tree of life. So continue to live and persevere in faith. Then as we close, we're reminded of our need to be dependent upon God and to live by his grace and for his grace to strengthen us. Samson seems to think that it's all by his own strength. He's a bit of a punster. He makes these riddles, kind of playing at life. So the word for, for heap and donkey are, are the same, or, or they're, they're very similar words. They rhyme. And that's why the, our NIV translates it in a way that's, that's pretty good. With, the, with a donkey's jawbone, I've made donkeys out of them. And it's hard to capture that this pile of bodies sounds like uh, the word for donkey in Hebrew. One commentator puts it in a way, I think that captures it quite well. With the jawbone of an ass, I've piled them in a mass. It's something like that. He's a man who's playing at life. He's making it all about himself. Earlier in the book of Judges, Deborah writes this beautiful song of praise to God. There's this victory that's won. And what does she do? She, she sings this beautiful song of praise to God, glorifying him. At the song of Moses after they passed through the Red Sea. This beautiful song of praise and victory, uh, ascribing glory to God because he is the one who has done it. He is the one who has achieved victory. Samson has this great victory by the power of God and he, he makes a funny little pun because he wants to joke. And even in his crying out, he doesn't seem to get it. He says, "Uh, God, you've given me this great victory. You don't want to lose me, do you? You have to give me water. You have to make sure that you preserve my life. He always wants to keep the focus on himself. And yet, nevertheless, God's grace reigns. God gives him the water to revive him. But it is a reminder to us That we need to understand that it's only by God's grace that we can do anything in this life. Anything that pleases God, anything that glorifies him. John Owen, great great theologian, said that every single work you do in your life that glorifies God needs to be wrought in you by the Holy Spirit. We need to develop that mindset that it's only what God brings about in us that allows us to glorify God. Now, of course, we do end up doing those things which glorify God, but it's wrought in us through the power of the Holy Spirit. And so we need to develop prayer habits that show how dependent we are upon God. If you truly believe that it's only by God's grace that you can be strengthened to live according to the will of God and to live in a way that glorifies God, how differently, by which I mean how much more would you pray? If you are absolutely convinced that you need to be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. If you truly believe what Paul said in 2 Timothy chapter 2. Be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. If we really grasped that. How much would it increase our dependence upon God? All of our own ideas, all of our own strength, whatever. It will leave us out in the desert crying out. Make your life about God and his Christ. Don't make it about you. Don't be like Samson writing frivolous little rhymes after God does something great through you. Jawbone Hill, that name, is Samson saying it's all about me. It's all about me. But if you live in the shadow of the cross, if you live in the shadow of Golgotha, your life is all about Christ. And so live as if you're willing to make it all about him Pray for God to grant you a deeper dependence upon him, that you could live like Jesus, 
trusting in Jesus, knowing that he has given you the victory and that he will continue to strengthen you on the way. Let's pray. Father, we thank you and we thank you for the beautiful Savior, Jesus Christ, the one through whom we live. We give him all of the glory. We ask that you would empower us by his spirit to live like him, that we might glorify you. We know that he is the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to you but through him. And so we pray that you would enliven faith in us, enliven faith in people throughout the world as they hear the gospel today. May many turn to you in faith and repentance. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We end.